Welcome to Foolish Voices, a Company of Fools podcast. Company of Fools is a professional theater company based in Sun Valley, Idaho, and is a proud part of the Sun Valley Museum of Art. More information can be found online at svmoa.org. Welcome to Foolish Voices. I'm Scott Palmer, Producing Artistic Director of Company of Fools. And on this show, we talk to a wide range of theater practitioners, both here in Sun Valley and all across the world, about how the current global health crisis is impacting their work, about their creative lives, and about their hopes for the future of our art form. Please consider supporting Company of Fools by making a donation in any amount via our podcast platform or online at svmoa.org. In this episode, I have the remarkable pleasure to be talking with Dr. Elizabeth Tavares. Elizabeth is assistant professor in the Hudson Strode program in Renaissance studies at the University of Alabama. Elizabeth specializes in early English drama and her research includes playing companies, theater history, and Shakespeare in performance. She's now completing her book, The Elizabethan Repertory System Before Shakespeare, Playing the Stock Market. I cannot wait to hear all about that book. Elizabeth's prize-winning scholarship has appeared in Shakespeare Studies, Shakespeare Bulletin, and a number of edited collections. She's a three-time Mellon Foundation Fellow and received grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Society for Theater Research, Newberry, Folger, and Huntington Libraries. Her dramaturgy credits include a three-woman Macbeth at Portland Center Stage and work with the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, Backroom Shakespeare Project, and Original Practice Shakespeare Festival. Welcome to Foolish Voices, Dr. Tavares. How are you? I'm so good. Thanks for having me. I can't, I am so excited. I have been chomping at the bit to get you to talk to me about the madness that is this pandemic and its implications for theater. Is that weird? No, this is just such a crazy moment that we're living through, isn't it? It, it really is. So what's going on with you? I mean, I, I know I introduced you as the assistant professor in the Hudson Strode program and Renaissance studies, but you're kind of currently still working at Pacific University, aren't you? I am. Yep. So I'm okay. my, my sort of last uh, semester and it's such a strange way to sort of leave my students is in this moment. So we're doing a lot of online teaching, lots of video time to make sure uh, we're getting all those connections and projects done. So yeah, I'm in North Portland at the moment. Um, which has, which is weird. <laughs> that is weird. Uh, what, what's going on at Pacific? What, what's happening at Pacific U? Is it shut down? Everybody gone? Teaching online? So uh, we've all moved online, at least for the undergraduate programs. It's tougher. We've got a lot of health professions grad programs um, that are on a quarter system rather than a semester system. And like, if they get behind, they can get behind for a whole year. And because of how they're sequenced. So I'm actually not entirely sure. I don't want to speak for sort of the health professions colleges, but for the undergrads, yep, we've taken all of the classes that we can online. The buildings aren't closed um, because we do have students, you know, who, you know, came out of foster care, don't have homes to go to. So you can't just send everybody home, right? Um, so dining halls are still open. Some basic services are still open because we still have students who college is sort of home for them. Right. right. Um, so, but most of our undergrads have gone home if they can go home and we're out teaching online. That's great. That's awesome. I mean, that, that's been a sort of recurring question that I've had for folks is about what happens when academic institutions close down and students don't have any place to go. I'm glad that Pacific is being thoughtful and kind and, and accommodating to an entire range of students who need schools like Pacific to be smart about it. So that's awesome. What what courses are you currently teaching online? Anything? Uh, so I had to take, I have three courses a semester, um, one of which is Shakespeare in performance, which is kind of tricky to do online. <laughs> <laughs> I've realized. Um, but I have a, like a freshman writing course and they've been champs. They've just been awesome. And then I have a, a sort of junior level research methods class, which is designed for our juniors in creative writing and English literature getting ready for their big capstone projects. Um, so those two courses are front loaded to be more FaceTime and workshoppy. So the back end of those courses are more work driven. So I think we're gonna be just fine for those. The Shakespeare one, it was interesting. This is the first semester I've been experimenting with online editions. So oh, right. that class was like ready to go online weirdly. 
um, in unexpected ways. So all of my fears about like, how do I teach an online edition in the classroom have now dissipated because I'm not teaching in a classroom. <laughs> right. So there's a silver lining, at least in some yeah. small way. So what are you going to get them to do? I mean, I'm assuming Shakespeare in performance class is sort of basically looking at Shakespeare in performance, right? So yeah, we do so many like devising activities and dramaturgy activities. You know, there's just so much get up and around in the room, um, which we had been doing a lot of. And I have the building I was teaching. It was really great because it had a nice little balcony that you could look over. So we were replicating some different like balcony scenes and other sorts of architectural affordances in the building. So hopefully that stuff's going to stick with them. I think I'm going to have them do some activities in their homes or in buildings that they're in to sort of think about how do you, you know, so much of Shakespearean performance, you know, in the hundred years of playing before we really get the dedicated playhouses in London. I mean, everybody made money on tour and that's still really the bulk of money-making ventures. And certainly in the 1570s through the 1580s, um, money is made on tour. So I think one of the ways I'm gonna shift things is really think about like, all right, if you're a company of eight guys and you have to make this house work, what are you gonna do? Right, um, right. So you're, you're, stuck, you're stuck in your house with your four roommates. Go, go and make enough money to support your traveling band of troubadours. Where are you gonna stay? Which room gets act one of Hamlet? That kind of thing? Right. That's right. That's right. And we're doing Titus uh, Andronicus right now. And, they're... Oh, and you know, that's my favorite Shakespeare, right? Is it? It's one of my favorites, too. It's my it's my all time favorite. I love it so much. Oh, man, that's so great. They're reading this article by Sally Templeman, which is awesome. And it, she's hypothesizing about um, if you did that play in any of the inn yards where there would have been a very big kitchen and you would have been smelling all of those food smells while that play is ongoing, how the play is semi aware of that. So I think I'm gonna have- Really? Oh, that's yeah. fascinating. Is that good? <laughs> so of course, while they were traveling to all those, uh, all, of, all of those spaces where there would have been these giant kitchens, of course the, the players were like, oh, we should incorporate some of those smells into the scenes. Right, oh, yeah. I love that. Isn't that good? Yeah. It's just yeah. another reason that I love that play so much. Yeah. Right? Uh, and it's just so efficient and economic. Did you know it was possibly a sequel? No, to yeah. what? To Titus and Vespasian. Uh, okay, that now that is a name I've heard, but that is not a play I know at all. That's because it's lost. We only know how uh, much money oh. it made and when it was uh, performed, but we don't know what its contents were. But we, it's in rep at the same time that Titus Andronicus is, so we think that Titus might be a sequel potentially. So, I'm tr I'm trying to imagine what part one of the Titus. <laughs> the time right? the story would have been how many people would have been eaten and murdered and hands chopped <laughs> off in that one right right and it would totally change how sympathetic or not he is exactly right? sort of know what his backstory was um, I'd love an explanation about why he's so happy to murder his son so quickly <laughs> right I mean it does it, the play does start off with the sort of like okay so a lot of them are dead really sorry about that and they had to go and right. you know right. and here are all the bodies uh, yeah uh, no, I love it. I mean, it, you know, people often talk about Titus and they go, oh, it's so ridiculous. It's really more of a comedy. And I go, well, I mean, I think that's a modern sensibility that approaches it that way. Uh, certainly there are ridiculous things that happen in it, but it is some of the most beautiful, tender, raw verse that I think Shakespeare ever wrote. The stuff from Marcus is yeah. un, 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 unbelievably beautiful. Um, and I just think, that, you know, in some in some ways, I feel like he got more commercial as he went in some ways, and that those early plays have a degree of fearlessness about his writing that I just love. Yeah, and I think, I, I do, I think that is a really excellent play, and I think some of the reasons why it's, you know, that play is, has four different Cordo printings in the period, um, and it, every time it gets printed, more playing companies get attached to that title page. And it's one of like the three that were owned by all four of the major big playing companies in the 1590s that Shakespeare would have been. It's like, there's only three plays that circulated. Um, so it's quite promiscuous as a play, but I right. think the version, got of, around. 
Yeah, but I think the version that we get is like one that's been tested and tried and worked across lots of companies or across, you know, a lot of different like dramaturgical and material strengths. And I think that's one of the many reasons why that play just works so well. Hmm. Yeah, it was tested out. It got it, yeah. it got tried out on various audiences in various locations and kind of distilled down to into its most its its most excellent performative self. I love that. Isn't that fun? Yeah, I, I love I, it. Like, yeah. We should hang out more often. We, I think it's possible that you and I are the only two people who would like to spend hours and hours talking about Titus Andronicus. I think so. And you're <laughs> one of my favorite places ever. I forgot that you were in Sun Valley, which I've been to many times. Oh, really? What 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 has brought you to Sun Valley? Uh, my family's all from Idaho, and my grandmother loved taking me there to see all the Hemingway stuff and to see all of the ice dancing in the summer. Yes, both Hemingway and ice dancing, two of the major attractions in Sun Valley during the winter. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's honestly, the Hemingway stuff is incredible. Um, I've gotten to know Jenny, who's the uh, executive director of Community Library, and they own the Hemingway House. Um, and there, it is this, um, you should apply because they take, they have people come in and stay for months on end doing writing projects and research projects in the Hemingway house in, in Ketchum, which is amazing. That sounds amazing. I think we should write, we should come up with our version of Titus and Vespasian. Done. House. <laughs> Done. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, uh, mistaken identities, cross, you know, sort of cross gender, uh, you know, cross-dressing, um, someone is lost and found, like, I don't know. Those Perfect. are, those are not real themes that Shakespeare ever explores in the rest of his work. So <laughs> we could, we could make a go of it. You yeah. are working on a book that I think feels to me like a remarkably prescient book to be writing in this current moment, which is the Elizabethan repertory system before Shakespeare playing the stock market. Um, Tell me about your book. Thanks. I hope it will be prescient. One of the um, thoughts is that it might speak to, um, you know, theater scholars as well as uh, contemporary practitioners. It looks at um, basically repertory seasons right in the decade before Shakespeare comes on the market. You know, he's really... Uh, his first plays are really coming out around 1592, right? This is also the year that Marlowe is killed. So there's really no overlap between the two of them. Um, but that's when his plays are first coming out. So what did playing look like? What were the sort of staging conventions that he would have been trained in before he starts writing? You know, we like to say Shakespeare's so innovative, but we don't know exactly how <laughs> because right, we have to right. put down on paper, like what was normal practice? before we really see him come on the market. So that's sort of the rationale behind the book. Each chapter looks at a different season um, of plays and one playing company. So it's the Lord Strangsman, it's the Lord Admiral's men, it's the, um, the Queen's men. It's these different companies and it, it does an analysis of all the plays that they performed in a season and looks at any major, um, what I'm calling dramaturgical trends, so material affordances. So there's, you know, Lord Strangman loved to light people on fire. They had come up with staging technologies to um, what they call immolate, right? Uh, or set on fire safely a part of the body, such as a hand or the whole body. Um, so that's one staging tactic that you see them specializing in and going across their entire repertory. There's stuff about blocking, about using specific instruments, about using blackface and brownface, among other sort of techniques that you see sort of specific to companies. Um, and then you can sort of see that in those plays that start to travel between them, really make the most of those. So that's the theory with the book. Um, the final, final draft is due at the middle at of- five o'clock this afternoon. Yes, today. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, I, honest to God, Elizabeth, we could talk about this forever. So I wanna, I wanna make sure that I am understanding. And I also would like to offer you my services as an early reader of your book. Yeah, um, please. Send it to me. And I, I, you know, I have nothing going on but podcasting and making bread and getting fat in isolation. So um, <laughs> we're making a lot of bread too. That seems like I'm, it's a thing. It's maker. totally a thing. I love it. It's, it's great. So, so what you're telling me is that you've gone back and looked at a specific series of theater companies, specific theater companies about a, about 10 or so years before Shakespeare sort of bursts onto the scene. And you're looking at what, what kinds of things each one of those 
theater companies specifically were sort of known for mm-hmm. or what or what their kind of interesting hook was and then trying to trying to figure out how those various trends and styles of performance influenced broadly the sort of elizabethan uh, theater world is that pretty close yeah. so i'm trying to think about how styles is a term i'm using um, right loosely right trying to think about we you know we so often write about shakespeare in, in this really author centered way but you know, unfortunately, no one cared about authors in that way in the Renaissance, like playing companies owned texts, authors didn't, authors had to write to specific companies, just like you do today, right? You really have to pitch to a company season and what they're good at, right? Or what they want to invest in as a set of ideas. Um, So I'm really trying to think about the playing company as the locus or the center point of study, rather than the individual, which is really hard for literature scholars, right? Because we're trained to think about authors and individual people um, post the sort of romantic age, right, where we have like Shelley and Percy and we right. think about all these kinds of things that are like, oh, the, the embattled author writing alone where, you know, I was recently working on a project where I figured out um, this bar, which is called the Sun Tavern, where a lot of playing companies like to go and do their casting decisions, hold their meetings, have meals together, um, and basically do like stage readings of the plays before they decide to buy them, right? So that all these things are being happen- are happening in this collective decision-making mode rather than in this hyper-individualized mode. So I think we're missing a lot of the picture around Shakespeare and the period before it without thinking about um, community and companies in this collectivized way. I love that. I think it's so fascinating. And it's one of the things that, you know, you and I've had a couple of conversations in our our, our the brief time we've known each other about you know uh, I I have a great great love of uh, restoration era adaptations of Shakespeare yes. um, which no one I, I don't know if anyone else on the planet really cares about them other than me um, I think they're maybe they're, really they're so great I I love them and and you know and there were times that I was like we're doing this crazy you know this crazy production of this thing that was written a hundred years after Shakespeare died and no one knows who wrote it, right? And all these crazy restoration era adaptations that, um, you know, I used to get all this pushback from people about editing or adapting or rewriting Shakespeare um, because, you know, this sort of sense of the purity of the Shakespearean canon. And and my response to that is always, look, we're not 100% sure he wrote any of this stuff. Like, oh, yeah, that's and, and certainly we know he stole or borrowed. I mean, you know, there, as you say, there wasn't really that same sense of author ownership in the period. But, you know, it, it was completely accepted and pro- possibly required that Shakespeare and his playwriting colleagues would borrow, steal, help each other out, polish some stuff. Um, and I, I always, I've, I've always found that sort of resistance to uh, collaboration and adaptation in Shakespeare really surprising to me because it always struck me that that was the way he worked best as a playwright was as a collaborator uh, and as someone who doing communal work within the, the very specific period of time in which he lived. Is that, would you, do you think I'm smart? I think you're very smart. Yeah. I know, <laughs> I think you're smart no, too. I couldn't agree. I <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Heather Hirschfeld has this amazing book called um, uh, Joint Enterprises, and it's just awesome. And it's this really great, very accessible study of all these playwrights working in what she calls like teams um, of four. And we see that even earlier in Shakespeare's time where payments are being made to groups of people and very rarely is our plays being bought and sold between individuals. I just don't, I think how we write for TV today is probably a closer analog. Mm, I love that. That makes a lot more sense, writing teams. Yeah, I think, you know, like not everybody's good at writing the love scene or it's kind of impossible to be good at writing the love scene and the fighty sword scene at the same time, but maybe different people were uh, skilled at those different kinds of um, scenes and moments. Are Are you a Ben Johnson fan? I do like Ben Johnson. I don't always like watching Ben Johnson. <laughs> so we we will have to eventually have a whole separate conversation, possibly a podcast for the four people on the planet who are interested in Ben Johnson. <laughs> um, but I always found I always found like the notion of authorship around him. He was so focused on being famous and having you know sort of laying claim to and getting credit for his work. And I just have this beautiful image in my head of all the other Elizabethan playwrights 
you know, sitting around and being like, oh my God, what a, what an idiot. That guy's such a jerk. <laughs> like we've been working on each other's plays for decades. And now he comes in and is like, no, I'm the only one who can be a genius writer. I love that idea of, um, playwrights and and also companies getting together at a bar and having meals and sort of talking about their seasons and talking about casting and which plays are going to suit them it seems so much more collaborative than what what I think we're in now which is a much more financially competitive um sort of your success threatens my success industrial model for American theater I think so too, right? The celebrity driven season or show, right? Um, yeah, I think Johnson's a really interesting example because I think we often conflate the print lives of plays with the performance of plays, which Johnson is obsessed, right? With being, with having this understanding that he's sort of the poet laureate right. of England, but that's such a print phenomenon. And I, and I wonder if that is borne out in his actual writing of plays because he write, writes so much. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about Johnson too because there's, I'm sure you've seen on Twitter, right? All the stuff Shakespeare wrote during the plague, like apparently he wrote Lear, there is the sonnets, right? That are probably written towards in the time of the plague closures, but that's also during like this big boom in sonnets where everybody's obsessed with sonnet cycles in that moment. Um, and so he's definitely writing towards a larger trend as well. Like he's definitely writing to a marketplace that's really invested. Like we talk about 1594 as being the big sonnet boom. Right. So we learn about like Shakespeare and stuff he wrote and then all the stuff that like Newton discovered when his college was closed for playing. And I'm like, also Ben Johnson's son died and he never it, got over it. Exactly. Let's not forget. <laughs> Let's not forget, yeah, there are some downsides to plagues, right. <laughs> folks. It's not just about sudden explosions of creativity. It is also sometimes about, yes, about other horrible things. I, yeah, oh my God, you and I could talk about Ben Johnson forever. I love that. What What do you think in your research and in the focus on this book, um, what, what lessons do you think are particularly relevant for uh, contemporary theater practice like what what should we know or learn from what have we forgotten that would be valuable for us to remember I, I of course would hesitate to sort of make any judgments about you know theater practice today we have a lot more pieces in place in terms of like equity and protection of actors I think I every day I seem to go on the internet and I'm mourning the most like every time I see a theater closing or laying off their entire staff as we were chatting about a little while ago right 80 the Oregon Shakespeare Festival has laid off like 80% of their people today um, and have cut their season basically in half, which they think might open in September. And after the fires in Northern California that have been wiping out their seasons sort of the last two years, I'm really worried about them. But I'm also, I'm really surprised about their the lack of contingency funding um, in a lot of these theaters. And just that the first thing to go, right, is is the is the people. Um, and particularly the actors and artists, just assuming that they're going to be easily available when you're ready to come back to work. Um, so this is really concerning for me. Um, it's interesting in terms of repertory studies, particularly because repertory as a system is about hiring a group of people and then you put them in all of your shows. You don't hire for each and every single show, right? So while that hems in an artistic director um, and what kinds of choices that they can make, um, it also is a way to sort of salary or protect actors. And we've seen a sort of disinvestment in repertory as a model of hiring since about the 1580s in the US and the UK. Um, so I'm particularly interested in that. It would have been an interesting way to protect some communities of actors, right? Because everybody's just getting, I love the expression people are using, released from their contracts. Right, I know. <laughs> I know. Just, talk about, <laughs> talk about an interesting rhetorical flourish. Right, I'm like, it's like, you're not doing them a favor right you guys we're we're gonna let you go we're gonna let set you free to find other work right um exactly. there's plenty of work out there go go north young man find find right. theaters in seattle that will pick up your contract yeah yeah right. i i have also seen that phrase that i just go oh my god no that's not that is not what you're doing yeah i mean it's it, go ahead sorry no 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 go ahead i i so my training as a director was in Scotland and, and uh, at the University of Glasgow in the Royal Scottish, Scottish Academy of Music and Drama. And my training was all in rep, was all focused on that sort of old school British rep structure where you would gather 10 or 12 actors together 
and begin to develop a, a common language, a common aesthetic, figure out what kind of plays suited your interests and best suited the, the actors that you worked with. And, and you know, I, I worked in that rep sort of structure for six or seven years when I was in Scotland before moving back to the United States and, and found myself suddenly very much aware of the fact that rep systems in the US are almost impossible to implement. Mm -hmm. because of the financial structures, the demands on diversity of programming, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, 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 it is really hard in the current sort of fiscal universe of, of nonprofit professional theaters to truly have a rep system. Yep. And to be, to have like inclusive casting, which I, there was a big kerfuffle with the Royal Shakespeare Company a couple of years ago when they were doing these um, sort of Chinese Renaissance classics. Um, and they thought that they could just cast their entire white company in these plays. Um, right. Not so, so much. Yeah. Not yeah, so much. <laughs> yeah, not really fit. You know, but the answer is not let's get rid of an, our rep system entirely so we can cast inclusively. Let's hire inclusively into these companies. So I, I it's been interesting to see this inclusive sort of casting move come at the same time where uh, contracts are being disinvested in. Right. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I mean, I, I I think, I mean, I am very worried about the Oregon Shakespeare Festival as well. And I have a lot of friends that, that work there, both as artists and and administrators. And I'm just wondering sort of what what lessons we might learn from this. Like what what brings to mind for you, you know, as an artistic director, I am in the midst of these questions about, yeah. you know, what are we gonna do about a season? How do we do we shrink things down? Um do we go to small cast performances? Uh, I mean, we're contemplating whether or not equity is the sort of thing we can either afford, even though we're we're completely committed to ensuring that our actors are paid a living wage and have health insurance and pension benefits. What, what kinds of things are coming up for you as a, as a scholar and a researcher um, that you think we should be thinking about? Yeah, I'm always interested in like size of season and size of company and how you can get actors to play across, right, different roles, which I guess is sort of obvious based on my research, and to play across types. Um, particularly for younger people, right, is good training. Rep has always been such a really good system to train younger people and gain trust with your larger um, company. Um, also just, there's been really uh, interesting uh, reporting online about um, Evo Van Hove, right, uh, and there was some, really recent good reporting about Broadway constantly pulling his work over, but that's all work that's been funded um, by his government, right? And he's developed these long-term relationships with actors. So they're willing to do uh, risk-taking work because they've been invested in. So that suggests to me that, you know, it's an obvious statement, but government funding for theater productions is important because then you can have long-term productions really cultivate artists and then you can weather stuff like this. I'm also really interested in like how boards are, like board of trustees are affecting um, company decisions. I'm really surprised about the lack of contingency funding that um, has been set aside. I'm really surprised at um, the private sector that's not helping out um, theater companies. Yeah, I mean, it's been, it's interesting. I was, I've been having this conversation with a number of my sort of uh, theater admin colleagues across the country and, you know, uh, Beth Lewis, managing director of Bag and Baggage, the theater mm -hmm. company I founded in Hillsborough, and you know Beth very well because she works with you at Original Practice Shakespeare. Um, yeah. We, we have been told for years that, uh, that this sort of being pushed by funders and by, <coughs> excuse me, foundations and trusts and public sector organizations that we need to have three months of contingency on hand at all times, three months. Mm -hmm. Well, we're gonna burn through that three months pretty quickly, right? Absolutely. Like theater companies are gonna burn through that very quickly unless they make really serious and, and heartbreaking, devastating decisions about firing artists, right? Like that, yep. that, that system of thinking about having a three month minimum contingency, a working capital fund of three months is only really relevant if, if you're gonna be out of it in at the beginning of month four and that you're able to start producing work right immediately, right? Um, <clears throat> the, the idea that you would shut down for three months and use your contingency to pay for staffing 
uh, administrative overhead, off, you know, building maintenance, whatever. Um, it, it's a real, it's a, it's a false comfort because in this particular circumstance, we know many theaters are going to be six months, eight months until they reopen, um, mm-hmm. until they begin to get ticket income, ticket revenue back coming in. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really, really devastating sort of financial model for the nonprofit theater. And so I think the move to streaming has been really interesting. And we've seen like a lot of different responses to it in the last week, which has been fascinating. I don't know if you've been following the American Shakespeare Center situation. They also had to like furlough all of their staff. Um, huge, uh, right, Shakespeare Center in the in Virginia. Um, they have a biannual conference I go to every two years and it's wonderful and excellent. But to see that that happened so quickly. Um, and then they streamed one of their performances for the very first time and they made, I think, $350,000 just on like, I think it was like $5 if you wanted to get in on the live stream. Wow. Yeah, and so that it's sort of being touted as a success, but um, as I don't see, you know, my friends who are staff there, I don't see them getting paid. They're still working without pay at the moment. Right. Um, so, that's interesting. So that move online and then, you know, I, I'm sure you do too, but those national theater live streaming right. um, I go to all the time so I can stay up to date and they're like streaming those for free every Thursday. But I wonder if those actors from those productions are getting a cut from that. Um, or is that just something that the national theater is going, you know, like everyone's moving online and every time I try to go to these like marquee TV online and different things like that, it's only unextended like you have a one month free trial and then we're gonna start charging you. So I'm confused about this move to online and streaming. And is that is that gonna be something that becomes more normalized in terms of theater performance? I don't know. I mean, it's, it is it is certainly <laughs> something that has been keeping me awake nights over the last couple of weeks. I mean, we, you know, the, the sort of general, the kind of common wisdom is, well, you gotta go online, you gotta get online, you gotta get online. And, and I go, oh, okay, well, uh, you know, we have to talk to equity. We have to make sure that we can get permission. Um, we have contracts with playwrights that tell us that we can't do their contemporary work on video or live streaming. The, the, you know, and, and I can't figure that out in 12 hours, right? I can't, I, it's going to take us as an industry longer than a couple of days to figure out how to transform or, or literally transfer our entire working artistic model, which is building-based, audience-focused, you know, butts in seats, how we take that entire, you know, mechanism of art creation and shove it into a live stream or into a YouTube video. Um, it, It is a very complicated process. I mean, we've been having conversations here about how can we find plays that are in the public domain, that's largely Shakespeare, you know, that plays that people are going to actually want to see. Do we instead, you know, go to the back to the restoration and do the plays that no one's ever heard of because everyone's doing a Romeo and Juliet online right now, right? Like what are the, what are the ways we continue to sort of find ourselves being relevant to our audiences and to a theater going, you know, audience base, um, when we can't do um, a Broadway musical, we can't do Cats streaming from the Liberty Theater in Haley, right? We can't, we just can't make that turn. Mm-hmm. The ship is too big to turn it at that, at that quick, uh, quick uh, pace. Does that make well, sense? Absolutely. It's such, it's such a good set of questions. And I, and I do wonder if it's worth it. I'm like, well, we have every bit of television we could possibly want on the internet. And I believe that's not what theater was serving, right? That sort of sense of embodied community where you're in the space together um, and that that experience is never replicatable. You can't have that again. Um, that's, I, I my, like, that's my resistance to it is that yeah. I, I just really feel like if what we're going to do is try and create content online, then we need to create content that suits the online environment. Things like podcasts, instructional videos, doing lectures, blah, 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 those kinds of things. I am less interested, and I'm deeply suspicious of the -hmm. the claim that says, oh, just take your show and put it online and people will come and watch it. 
I, you know, Netflix is uh, has way higher production values than than anything I'm going to be able to throw on YouTube in in the next two weeks, right? Um, and it also violates the nature of what it is our art form is about at its at its most basic level. The in real time piece seems important. I don't know if you were if you followed. It was I want to say it was maybe 2008, perhaps earlier than that. There was. The, I think it was the Royal Shakespeare Company did a Twitter play called Such Tweet Sorrow. I uh, have not heard about that. Oh, it's it's been archived online. It's awesome. And then, of course, as Shakespeare teachers, we all attempted to replicate it. And so there's this whole like uh, subgroup of pedagogy around um, Twitter role play. Um, and so assigning handles to students to sort of work through uh, the play. So I've done this with Othello a bunch of times because a lot of my students identify as white, um, you know, out here in Oregon. And so really trying to think about what it means to be the only person in your community who's a person of color. So they would trade handles every day. So we enact sort of a rep company model, but within one play. So we do act one on Monday and they would do the play in real time and they'd have to do all the main beats and we'd figure out the main beats as a class but then they'd have to do it on their own outside of class and find the own, their own sort of paraphrase, their own words for it. So not the Shakespeare text. Um, wow. Yeah, and I did it twice and it's fabulous. And my, in my first class, they were particularly dynamite. Um, it, we did it just as Me Too was breaking. And so it became this awesome meditation on the intersectionality between the violence against women and the violence against black bodies in that play. Wow. Um, it was, it was so, so great. Um, and my students, you know, as that place, it starts in the middle of the night where they're hollering up uh, at her father's window, right? At Desdemona's father's window. Um, and my students started the play at midnight uh, doing that. So that was great. And they figured out how to do asides by using the DM function. So they, <laughs> they DM each other and then they take- Clever a buggers. Yep, and then tweet that. So that would affect the sort of aside negotiating private and public um, speech. And then they came up with like a hashtag at the end to sort of end the play. Um, and they just tweeted a wall of it. So, you know, that kind of stuff is like, it's theater in real time, but it doesn't require the bodies in the room, but it is sort of affecting that liveness. And then we had people following from all over the country. And then weird things happened, like people pretended to be characters in it. Like they just invented new characters and participated. <laughs> <laughs> Which is cool and weird. Yeah, get out of <laughs> my, get off my stage. Yeah, I was sort of like, great, what? You are not a named character in this production. Get out. Right. Yeah. And I guess amazing. that happened in the Such Tweet Sorrow scenario too, because it was like Romeo and Juliet in a high school setting. And then there was a rogue person who was pretending to be like Juliet's classmate or something like that. Um, See, so I think that those things are so much more interesting to me than, than, like that just seems to speak to the spirit of what we do, right? The spirit right. of our art form in a way which feels authentic and and uh, and unique and, and and insightful in a way that, you know, I can't. I'm not going to be able to throw my production of the niceties on stage uh, and and shove it into a, a YouTube channel and have people have an experience that I'm going to be proud of or that feels legitimate, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the way. restoration is such a great sort of like place to be thinking about this, right? Because it's, that's about plays that were opening after like what, oh, you'll know more about this than I do, but more than 20 years of closure. And yeah, 30, and, yeah, 30 ish years of closure. Yeah. Theaters that had been mothballed and no one had been able to go. And suddenly, you know, there's this, this un, unbelievable explosion of people rushing out into the streets desperate to go see theater again uh which they embraced with a with a passion and with a lot of body with a lot of dick jokes i mean let's be honest there's well, just a lot of dick jokes so i mean i'm half in it for the dick and poop jokes. me too <laughs> Um, no, absolutely right, and I and I love the fact that those were weren't the first two theaters that opened. They had to get state funded approval um, to open up, and they were even like the Duke of York's theater was even using like the monarchs like investment robes. And yes, there was this whole crazy thing where it was yeah, there was this bizarre um, series of of uh, streams of cash. Uh, and, and people who had to promise to pay things back and, um, you know, yeah, it was, it was bizarre. And, and, and it's so fascinating because I think we are about to experience something similar. I think so to too. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's very interesting that uh, Oregon Chaser Festival, you know, they, 
they cut, I think, at least five shows, if not more. So they're going to do, they say they're going to do six in September. And I think they're all Shakespeare and Shakespeare adaptations except one, mm-hmm. which is interesting because as a as a Shakespearean, I'm allowed to grumble and be like, oh, they just don't do enough Shakespeare out I there. I know, and now. <laughs> and now it all is. And I find that, you know, fascinating, I'm sure, for all the reasons about rights that you were mentioning. Yep, yep. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I have this, there's this, I have this horrible sinking feeling in my gut that is about, you know, if if we're able to get to summer and everybody's able to open back up, I think we're going to be fine. But if it gets to a point where we're looking at, you know, big major theaters like OSF closing for six to eight months or other theaters literally just saying we're skipping the season, we'll come back in a year, um, there is going to be a real a, a, a sort of sea change in the way regional theaters, particularly. I mean, Broadway will do its own thing, but the rest of us out here, uh, there will be a, a radical change in the way things are funded, in in who funds things, uh, what sorts of shows are going to receive patronage. Um, you know, I, I just think I'm not sure we have uh, any idea about what what a potential future holds for the financial backing of nonprofit theaters in the United States if this yeah. thing lasts for another six months, right? Yeah, and do you have any, I mean, if you were to hypothesize, like, how do you think that's going to affect um, the output of particularly regional theaters, right, that are serving a specific community and are really the artistic home for a group of people that don't have a lot of options? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I this is just my gut, it, and from various conversations with other artistic directors from theaters about our size or you know mid-sized kind of regional theaters. I mean, I think we're all having the same conversations, which is smaller casts, reducing the expenditure on artists, right? Like we're going mm-hmm. from shows that have six or eight people down to single solo shows or two-person shows. Uh, probably going with known titles as opposed to new work. Um, that has been a a real trend I see people doing, right? Like many of my colleagues in the National New Play Network are sort of saying, we don't know if we can take a risk on new work. We don't know if we can take a risk on a new play. Um, You know, (laughs) who, what better, Neil Simon will come, you know, surging back into regional theaters, probably not that specific type name, but, you know, feel good, um, comedies, small casts, and uh, a lot of folks that I know are just stopping the whole idea of bringing in outside directors, designers, and actors from outside of their community. Um, I mean, I think that the sort of uh, the travel, the traveling nature of independent artists, theater artists, and actors, my sense is that people are just not hiring from out of town. Um, you know, you're trying to figure out housing, travel, if equity is requiring you to pay a per diem, like any of those sorts of things that you can trim back on to limit financial risk, I think everyone's exploring those. Um, and I have, I, I find that both devastating and horrific, but there are, there are, there is a part of me that also feels like it provides theaters like ours with the opportunity to really be thoughtful about how we reinvest in the artistic talent within our community you were mentioning that rep structure about training. I It immediately makes me go to the idea that if I can't find an actor to play a certain role, I need to build, find, and train that actor locally, um, right? Like there there may be some, some changes coming around uh, artistic content that are radically different from the way we think about regional theater at the moment. Yeah, that's so interesting how you're talking about training. It, it, it again, oddly brings us back to Ben Johnson. Um, one of the things I've always found so interesting about him, right, he's sort of famous for killing a man um, and then being able to recite biblical Latin. So he got away with it, but was branded. Um, <laughs> but then was sort of, he was famous for being very good at training the young boy players. He was mm-hmm. sort of really good with the kids, which I, I find I, one of the reasons why he'd be one person I'd want to meet um, because I'm just like, killed a man, <laughs> but also really good with the little kids. Fast. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, and I and and I I'm trying to remember the circumstances of why he killed the guy. It was a bar fight or something weird. It was some ridiculous. He was offended, and I don't remember. But yeah, um, I, I don't recall either. Uh, just just the juxtaposition of those two things. But yeah, thinking about training, you know, I I I sort of came of age as a dramaturg in Chicago, which has the really wonderful Chicago Shakespeare Theater. But all of my theater making friends are always uh, really frustrated with it because they almost exclusively hired from the coasts and right. from other festivals. Um, and only in recent years with sort of change in administration have they come, but you know, you'd have the city full of fabulous uh, Shakespeare actors who can never get work at the Shakespeare theater in their city. Um, and so, you know, the, the court theater at the University of Chicago ended up being, you know, one of the places you would go to see really amazing work um, and particularly classical work and Shakespeare. I mean, I saw a Titus there that was completely life-changing. Um, and so I, I find that a really interesting comment, right? The thing about training and how one effect might be that there is this flourishing because there are more opportunities to train or access in local communities. Yeah, I mean, ultimately the end, at the end of the day, I think financial risk and mitigating financial risk is gonna make a lot of theaters start to look at where can they cut, right? Like what are their, what are the, what are the aspects of their expenditures that they can trim fairly easily without, you know, necessarily quote unquote impacting quality? And one of those areas is travel and housing, right? Like, um, and so if that means that we start to look at how do we how do we develop a repertory or a base rep base of actors in a community that will allow us to do the kind of high quality work that we want, but also save us some money. Um, that feels like a natural economic sort of outcropping of this process, um, which sounds terrible, and there are lots of downsides to that, but I also think there might be some upsides to it as well. Yeah, I wonder, you know, the ways in which it might be done with intentionality. Right. You know, my favorite theater scholars is um, Marvin Carlson, who's got this... Um, his argument is that like theater is this great memory machine, right? And like the best theatrical moments are when we get to bring our memories from previous productions into the production we're currently experiencing. This is why rep can be really powerful for your brain, right? You remember certain actors in different roles. And so you have expectations of them and then you see them in something surprising and new and it gives you this whole new set of emotional reactions yep. to a play. Love um, it. And yeah, and his work is, um, so fabulous and he thinks about theater as this great recycling apparatus and one of the unexpected and maybe goofier findings from my book is that um the admiral's men which was they were the longest running theater company in the period um shakespeare wasn't associated with them explicitly they're sort of they're often pitched as sort of the antithesis to the king's men or the chamberlain's men which is a sort of false cognate because actually the admirals and chamberlains would um, combine and perform together a lot. Uh, so lots of these companies would collaborate and do performances together and then separate when they would tour. Um, but one of the things they seemed to have owned was a giant chariot that could be pulled by multiple people and was specifically designed to be pulled by people. Um, we see it in Tamburlaine, um, and then my book traces how it's used in a whole bunch of other plays. So once you've got a giant torture chariot, um, you're probably gonna be wanting more plays to use that expensive prop in so yes you know, i wonder if that's a different way of like cost cutting but with an intentional approach right like what are the materials or the resources that we have not quite in such a literal way but right? what are the strengths of our community of our team of our actors of the space that we have what is it good at that then we can capitalize on yep um i think that i is, love that I, yeah. I yeah i mean i think yes i think i think that's i'm going to give you credit for all of that thinking even though i think you said a couple of other people came up with that. You're a genius. I'm still giving you full credit for it. It's great. Uh, I love that. I want a chariot. Don't you? I, want I do. I really do. And then every play that I ever direct from now until I'm dead will have a chariot in it for whatever reason. Death of a salesman. Yeah, just a chariot. Billy Loman being brought in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, it has, I, honest to God, I could keep talking to you forever and ever and ever because we're both dorks and we both love the same thing, which is awesome. Uh, thank you for joining us for Foolish Voices. I am Scott Palmer, Producing Artistic Director of Company of Fools. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider supporting Company of Fools by making a donation in any amount via our podcast platform 
or online at our parent organization, the Sun Valley Museum of Arts website, which is svmoa.org. In this episode, I have had the great profound pleasure of speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Tavares, who is an assistant professor in Renaissance studies at the University of Alabama. As you could probably tell, her expertise is in uh, Shakespeare and the Elizabethan repertory system and all the cool stuff that I love, uh, which makes her one of my favorite people on the planet. Thank you so much for joining us on Foolish Voices, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. Keep in touch with me and then call me someday when you have an open bottle of wine and we can just gossip about Ben Johnson, okay? I love it. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks. 